Chapter 10 of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter 10 History. From the time Manson, as a barefooted boy, caught trout in Ragged Brook until the winter of '62, when a sturdy young man of eighteen he had fallen deeply in love with Liddy Camp, a few changes had taken place in Southton. Three different principals had been in charge of the academy, one of these, a Mr. Snow, being very capable and universally popular. Later, when Mr. Weber succeeded to that position, the question of popularity may have been considered an open one. We must do him the justice to say he was efficient, however, and if he had an exaggerated idea of his own importance, it was inherited, and a failing that neither time nor experience could eradicate. The two worthy dominies continued to try to convert sinners by exhaustive arguments on predestination and infant damnation, but strange to say, made little progress. A few of the good townspeople who were not members of either church, as well as some that were, had been for many years reading and thinking for themselves, and had come to realize that the dry bones of Calvinistic argument had lost their force, and that the Supreme Being was not the merciless God the churches had for years depicted him, but rather a Father whose love and mercy was infinite. The then ultra-liberal Unitarian idea had begun to spread, and a few who had outgrown the Orthodox religion organized a Unitarian society, and built a modest church to worship in. Among these pioneers in thought were Loring Camp and Jesse Olney, the latter the author of some of the best school books then used, a deep thinker and a leader in town affairs. There were other thinking men, of course, who were prominent in this new movement, but, as this simple story is not an historical narrative, their names need not be mentioned. This new church and its followers, of course, incurred the condemnation of the other two, especially the one led by Parson Jotham, who exhausted all argument and invective to convince his hearers that Unitarianism and sin were synonymous terms and that all the new church followers were surely slated for the fiery furnace. So vigorous were his utterances in this connection, and so explicit his description of the fire that is never quenched and the torture that never ends, that it was said some of his hearers could smell brimstone and discern a blue halo about his venerable white head. One of his favorite arguments was to describe the intense joy those who were saved through his scheme of salvation would feel when they came to look over the heavenly walls and see the writhing agony of all sinners in the burning lake below. When his eloquence reached this climax, he would cease pounding his open Bible and glare over the top of his tall pulpit at the assembled congregation in the hope, perhaps, of discovering among them some Unitarian sinner who could thus be made to realize his doom. In justice to Parson Jotham, it must be said that his intentions were of the best, no doubt, but his estimate of the motive forces of human action was too narrow. 
He believed the only way to win people from vice to virtue and good conduct was to scare them into it. In spite of all the denunciations of the other two churches, the new one, though feeble at first, slowly increased its following. To this one, with their respective parents, came Liddy and Manson. While perhaps not mature enough to understand the wide distinction between Unitarianism and Calvinism, they realized a little of the inexpressible horror of Reverend Mr. Jotham's theories of infant damnation and the like, and were glad to hear no more of them. Like many other young people today, they accepted their parents' opinions on all such matters as best and wisest. They were not regular in their church attendance either, for Liddy could not always leave her invalid mother, and occasionally she and Manson found a drive in the summer's woods or a visit to the top of Blue Hill more alluring than even the Unitarian Church. Of similar tastes in that respect, and both ardent admirers of nature, and loving fields and flowers, birds and brooks, as the lovers of nature do, they often worshipped in that broad church. Manson especially, who had from childhood spent countless hours alone in the forests, or roaming over the hills, or along the streams, had learned all the lessons there taught, and now found Liddy a wonderfully sympathetic and sweet companion. To spend a few quiet hours on pleasant Sundays in showing her some pretty cascade where the foam flecks floated around and around in the pool below, or a dark gorge where the roots of the trees along its bank grew out and over the rocks like the arms of fabled gnomes, was a supreme delight to him. He knew where every bed of trailing arbutus for miles around could be found where sweet flag and checkerberries grew, where all the shady glens and pretty grottoes were, and to show her all these charming places and unfold to her his quaint and peculiar ideas about nature and all things that pertain to the woods and mountains delighted his heart. Since the evening when she had given him the wise advice not to cross bridges till he came to them, they had grown nearer together in thought and feeling, and whether in summer, when they drove in shady woods or visited a beautiful waterfall, where the rising mist seemed full of rainbows when the sun shone through it, or in winter, when they went sleighing over the hills after an ice storm and were breathless with admiration at the wondrous vision, no words or declaration of love had as yet passed his lips. He had vowed to himself that none should until the time came when he had more than mere love to offer. Since all his acts and words showed her so plainly what his feelings were, she began to realize what it must all mean in the end, and that in due time he would ask her the one important question that contains the joy or sorrow of a woman's life. As this belief began to grow upon her, it caused her many hours of serious thought, and had she not discovered in her own heart an answering throb of love, it is certain she was far too honorable to have allowed his attentions to continue. How the townspeople viewed the affair may be gathered from a remark made by Aunt Sally Hart, the village gossip, one Sunday at church. They tell me, she said, 
that young Manson's keeping steady company with Liddy Camp, and they're likely to make a match. Wonder if they'll go to live on his father's farm, or what he will do. As Aunt Sally was an estimable lady of uncertain age, who, never having had a love affair of her own, felt a keen interest in those of others, and as she occupied a place in Southton akin to the personal mention column of a modern society newspaper, it may be said her remark was a sufficient reflex of public opinion. When there were any social gatherings where they were invited, he was by tacit consent considered as her proper and accepted escort. At the academy she had never been in the habit of discussing her private affairs with her mates, and so perhaps was spared what might have become an annoyance. While she listened to much gossip, she seldom repeated it, and by reason of a certain dignified reticence among even her most intimate schoolgirl friends, no one felt free to tell her of the opinions current among them regarding herself and Manson. For this reason, a little deviation from the usual rule, made one day by her nearest friend, Emily Hobart, came with all the greater force. "'Do you know,' said Emily, when they were alone, "'it is common talk here in school that you and Charlie Manson are engaged?' "'Oh, you need not blush so,' she continued, as she saw the color rise in Liddy's face. "'Everybody says so and believes it, too. Shall I congratulate you?' This did not please Liddy at all. "'I wish everybody would mind their own business,' she said with a snap, "'and leave me to mind mine.' "'Oh, fiddlesticks,' continued Emily. "'What do you care? He is a nice fellow and comes of a good family.' We have all noticed that he has no eyes for any other girl but you, and never had. They say he fell in love with you when you wore short dresses. When Liddy went home that night, she held a communion with herself. So everybody believed it, did they? And she, in spite of her invariable reticence, was being gossiped about, was she? I've a good mind never to set foot in the academy again she said to herself. For a solitary hour she was miserable, and then the reaction came. She began to think it all over, and all the years she had known him from his boyhood passed in review. And in all those years there was not one unsightly fact, or one hour, or one word she could wish were blotted out. And they said he had loved her from the days of short dresses. Well, what if he had? It was no disgrace. Then pride came in, and she began to feel thankful he had, and as the recollection of it all came crowding into her thoughts and surging through her heart, she arose and looked into her mirror. She saw the reflection of a sweet face with flushing cheeks, red lips, bright eyes, and... Was it possible? a faint glistening of moisture on her eyelashes. "'Pshaw!' she said to herself as she turned away. "'I believe I am losing my senses.' The next two days at school she barely nodded to him each day. "'At least he shall not see it,' she thought. 
When the next Sunday eve came, she dressed herself with unusual care, and as it was a cold night, she piled the parlor fireplace full of wood and started it early. Then she sat down to wait. The time of his usual coming passed, but there was no knock at the door. The hall clock with slow and solemn tick marked one hour of waiting, and still he did not come. She arose and added fuel to the fire, and then, taking a book, tried to read. It was of no use. She could not fix her mind upon anything, and she laid the book down and, crossing the room, looked out of the window. How cheerless the snow-clad dooryard, and what a cold glitter the stars seemed to have! She sat down again and watched the fire. The tall clock just outside the parlor door seemed to say, Never, never, never. She arose and shut the door, for every one of those slow and solemn beats was like a blow upon her aching heart. Then she seated herself again by the dying fire, and as she gazed at the fading embers, a little realization of what woman's love and woman's waiting means came to her. When the room had grown chill, she lighted her lamp and retired to her chamber. "'I have never realized it before,' she said, as she looked at the sad, sweet face in the mirror. And that night it was long ere slumber came to her pillow. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline